series called Choosing Sides, and the sides we're talking about are a biblical worldview versus another worldview. There are a lot of other worldviews, but uh, there's only one way a line can be straight. All the other lines are crooked. And so as Christians, we're committed to Scripture, to the Word of God being the standard, and us conforming our thinking to God's thinking. As I prepare to teach and shepherd you, it starts always with my own study of a subject. Sometimes I just read a book and it gets me thinking and then I want to read more or I have a passage of scripture or a book of the Bible. And some of the subjects I've been studying for many years. I've been pastoring for 35 years, been a Christian uh, all my life, and so it accumulates and... and, uh, and so I've collected information from other students and, and other people who've studied and written about these subjects. Uh, and uh, a big part of what I think I'm called to do is to collect the best information that I can and to deliver it to you in a useful form. In these lessons, though, there's a, there's a little bit of my thought, uh, but uh, even those thoughts are usually thoughts that have been stimulated by the thoughts of others who have gone before me. For example, in preparing for today's lesson, I was reminded of another book. We're working through Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, but I was reminded of another book that was published in 1979. I don't know if I read it in 79 or 1980, but roughly 40 years ago, and the title of that book, a few of you will remember it, is Whatever Happened to the Human Race, uh, subtitle, Exposing Our Rapid Yet Subtle Loss of Human Rights by Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop. You may recall that C. Everett Koop was the Surgeon General under Ronald Reagan. So 41 years ago, these same issues that we're talking about today were emerging as critical issues, particularly the, you know, the issues of abortion and euthanasia and, and life issues. And so I want to take a, a few minutes here at the beginning as I pull that book off my shelf because I remembered I used to uh, be able to do this better than I can now uh, with current things, but I'll, I'll remember a book I read 40 years ago and remember it was on the left-hand side of the page in chapter 2 or that kind of thing. So I was able to pull this book out and kind of turn right to this passage that I want to share with you. Um, so again, Schaefer and Coop. There is a thinkable and an unthinkable in every era. One era is quite certain intellectually and emotionally as to what is acceptable. Yet another era decides that these so-called certainties are unacceptable and puts, up, puts another set of values into practice. On a humanistic base, people drift along from generation to generation, and the morally unthinkable becomes the thinkable in the year, as the years move on. By humanistic base, we mean the fundamental idea that men and women can begin from themselves and derive the standards by which to judge all matters. There are, for such people, no fixed standards of behavior. No standards that cannot be eroded or replaced by what seems necessary, expedient, or even fashionable. Or as I heard it put here recently, 
I don't really believe the Bible. I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe the Bible because it's so outdated. It's so antiquated. And so what's left? If, if we cast that aside, then really all that's left is me. I'll decide all this for myself. Sound familiar? Adam and Eve in the garden, we want to determine good and evil for ourselves. We don't want God telling us what's good and evil. We'll figure this out all by ourselves. So back to Schaefer and Coop. Perhaps the most striking and unusual feature of our moment of history is the speed with which eras change. Looking back in history, we notice that cultures such as the Indus River civilization uh, lasted about a thousand years. Today, the passing of eras is so greatly speeded up that the 1960s stand in sharp contrast to the 1970s. The young the young people of the 70s do not understand their older brothers and sisters of the 60s. What was unthinkable in the 60s is unthinkable no longer. The thinkables of the 80s and 90s will certainly include things which most people today find unthinkable and immoral, even unimaginable, and too extreme to suggest. Yet since they do not have the same overriding principle that takes them beyond relativistic thinking, when these become thinkable and acceptable in the 80s and 90s, most people will not even remember that they were unthinkable in the 70s. They will slide into each new thinkable without a jolt. We seem to be in danger of forgetting our seemingly unlimited capacities for evil once boundaries to certain behavior are removed. They, uh, there are choices to be made in every age, and, and, who are, and who we are depends on the choices we make. What will our choices be? What boundaries will we uphold to make it possible for people to say with certainty that moral atrocities are truly evil? Which side will we be on? And thus we're in this series called Choosing Sides. And so this is my comment here. We, as we continue to, to discuss the evolving views of humans, of persons and life, have you even... Uh, have you ever wondered how, for example, the German Holocaust came about? How could that even happen? Whether that could happen again? Could that happen here? First, it has happened and is happening in many places. And yes, it not only could happen here, it is happening here. And again, Schaefer and Coop make the, made these observations in 1979. So here we go again, back to them. Does all this seem an extreme projection? Thinking about where we're headed. The fork is three-pronged. First, arbitrary sociological law by the courts and legislators. Second, the changed attitude of the medical profession. Third, the general apathy and selfishness of the population, which in the name of rights grasp at a more and more hedonistic lifestyle. Recent history has something to teach, teach us about where we are. We think historians are becoming aware that a great number of abnormal behavior patterns of, of, of man were concentrated in the Nazi experience. 
Richard L. Rubenstein, in his book, The Cunning of History, Mass Death and the American Future, speaks of the Holocaust this way. He says this, The destruction uh, process required the cooperation of every sector of German society. The bureaucrats drew the definitions and decrees. The church gave evidence of Aryan descent. The postal authorities carried the message of definition, expropriation, denaturalization, and deportation. A place of execution was made available to the Gestapo and the SS by the Weimarkt. To repeat, the operation required and received the participation of every major social and political and religious institution in the German Reich. The important thing, ending that quote, the important, this is back to Schaefer and Coop, uh, the important thing to remember is that the medical profession took a leading part in the planning of abortion and euthanasia. Science, right? It seems likely that had it not been for the example and the active role played by the German physicians in the practice of euthanasia, Hitler's progress in the extermination programs would have been slowed if not stopped. The medical profession went along with Nazism in discouragingly large numbers. More than a few participated in the terror, genocide, and extermination programs and active and barbaric experimentation on the unfortunate minorities in the Nazis' grip. In 1946 and 1947, Leo Alexander, a Boston uh, psychiatrist, was consulted, excuse me, was consultant to the Secretary of War and on duty with the Office of Chief of, of Counsel for War Crimes in Nuremberg in a remarkable paper titled Medical Science Under Dictatorship, he outlined the problem. His concerns were vital when he first wrote about them in this country in 1949. They are of even greater concern to us today. Here are some of the highlights of Dr. Alexander's uh, presentation. Irrespective of other ideological trappings, the guiding philosophic principle of recent dictatorships, including that of the Nazis, has been Hegelian in that what has been considered rational utility and corresponding doctrine and planning has replaced moral, ethical, and religious values. You got that? So we have a Hegelian view that says, you know, we don't, we just have us. We have rationality. We don't need the Bible. We don't need religious authority. We ourselves are sufficient to figure out what's the best thing to do. Continuing, medical science in Nazi Germany collaborated with the Hegelian trend, particularly in the following enterprises the mass extermination of the chronically sick in the interest of saving useless expenses to the community as a whole, the mass extermination of those considered socially disturbing or racially and ideologically unwanted, the individual inconspicuous extermination uh, of those considered disloyal within the ruling group, and the ruthless use of, quote, human experimental material for medico-military research. Before Hitler came to power in 1933, a propaganda barrage was directed against the traditional, compassionate, 
19th century attitudes toward the chronically ill and for the adoption of a utilitarian, Hegelian point of view. Sterilization and euthanasia of persons with chronic mental illness was discussed at a meeting of Bavarian psychiatrists in 1931. Many people, including some in the medical profession, had accepted these principles before Hitler ever came on the scene. Ideas have consequences. Alexander says that Hitler exterminated 270,000 people, quote, in these killing centers. Then he adds that those so killed were, uh, were to be only, quote, the entering wedge for extermination. The methods used and the personnel trained in killing centers for the chronically sick became the nucleus of much larger centers in the East where the plan was to kill all Jews and Poles and to cut down the Russian population by 30 million. The first to be killed were the aged, the infirm, the senile, the mentally retarded, and defective children. Eventually, as World War II approached, the doomed undesirables included epileptics, World War I amputees, children with badly modeled ears, and even bedwetters. Physicians, I know this is disturbing. It's disturbing. That's why I remembered it for the last 40 years. But we need to be disturbed. This is what's happening in our world. Physicians took part in this planning on matters of life and death to save society's money. Adults were propagandized, one outstanding example being a motion picture called, quote, I Accuse, which dealt with euthanasia. Commenting on this, Alexander reported, quote, this film depicts the life history of a woman suffering from multiple sclerosis. In it, her husband, a doctor, finally kills her to the accompaniment of soft piano music rendered by a symphony sympathetic colleague in an adjoining room. Acceptance of this ideology was implanted even in the children. A widely used high school mathematics text titled Mathematics in the, Sci in the Service of Political Education, second edition, 1935, third edition, 1936, includes problems stated in distorted terms of the cost of caring for and rehabilitating the chronically sick and crippled. One of the problems in the math book asked, for instance, is how many new housing units could be built and how many marriage allowance loans could be given to newlywed couples for the amount of money it costs the state to care for the crippled and the insane. So the second most widely used edition of this textbook was issued in 1935, soon after Hitler came to power, and Alexander continues. The first direct order for euthanasia was issued by Hitler on September the 1st, 1939. All state institutions were required to report on patients who had been ill for five years or more or who were unable to work by filling out questionnaires giving name, race, marital status, nationality, next of kin, whether regularly visited and by whom, who bore the financial responsibility, and so forth. The decision regarding which patients should be killed was made entirely on the basis of this brief information by expert consultants 
most of whom were professors of psychiatry in the key universities. These consultants never saw the patients themselves. It's kind of like abortion, right? You don't have to actually look at that baby. There was a, this, this is one thing I remembered especially, because this is how this works. They're asking the question, how could this happen? There was an organization specifically for the killing of children, which was known by the euphemistic name of Realms Committee for Scientific Approach to Severe Illness Due to Heredity and Constitution. Transportation of the patients to killing centers were, was carried out by the Charitable Transport Company for the Sick. In addition, Alexander notes that, quote, the Charitable Foundation for Institutional Care was, quote, in charge of collecting the cost of the killings from the relatives, with, uh, from the relatives, however, informing them what the charges were, uh, were for, not reforming, informing them of the, what the charges were for in the death certificates, the cause of death was falsified. You got that? They killed their family members and then sent them the bill. Alexander, under, under the heading, quote, the early change in medical attitudes gives his warning. It all started with the acceptance of the attitude that there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. That is exactly what is being accepted today in the abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia movements. So, we're um, one more, let's see. Yeah, we're going to shift gears here now back to, uh, yeah, well, let me say, continuing his warning, Alexander adds this. But it's important to realize that the infinitely small wedge-in lever from which all this entire trend of mind received its impetus was the attitude towards the non-rehabilitable sick. And so now I'm going to turn to Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body, which offers more disturbing and thought-provoking information on this vital subject. You know, one of the images we have sometimes is... Uh, you heard the phrase that they fiddled while Rome burned. But oftentimes there's this euphemistic terminology, there's music, soft music playing in the background while horrible, horrible things are happening. And it, it's there to lull us to sleep. And there's all kinds of things in our culture to distract us and lull us to sleep in the midst of carnage. Science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, in his highly respect, who's highly respected for his many short stories that have been turned into movies, including Blade Runner, Minority Report, and Total Recall, uh, has one story exposed him to intense public criticism and controversy, and it was titled The Pre-Persons. He composed the story shortly after the Supreme Court's 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, and his purpose was to highlight the difficulty in defining personhood. Once the concept of personhood is detached from biology, there is no objective way to draw the line. So 
doesn't have anything to do with living cells and DNA and all that. We do have something unique here. No point at which can we logically say up to this point there was merely a human, but now it has been magically transformed into a person. In his fictionalized America, the age at which a child could legally be aborted had been relentlessly pushed forward. First, abortion was legal only in the early months of pregnancy, then in the later months. Then an abortion lobby argued that even newborns were just expelled fetuses. Where was the line to be drawn finally? So one of, the, that's one of the characters in the story actually asked that question. Where was the line to be drawn finally? When the baby smiled its first smile? When it spoke its first word or reached for its initial time for, its, reached its, for its initial time for a toy that it enjoyed? Lawmakers kept moving the line from one arbitrary stopping point to the next until they finally decided the age, the right age, was 12. The age when you can do algebra. That's when you have the cognitive capacity to qualify as a person. Up to then, quote, it was only body, animal instincts and body, animal reflexes and responses to stimuli like Pavlov's dog. Up to the age of 12 then, children were pre-persons and could be killed for any reason. If parents decided they didn't want their child anymore, they could call the local abortion center and they would send a van to collect the child like a dog catcher and take him or her to be euthanized. What does euthanized mean? You know that word? Good death. Euphemisms. The procedure was called postpartum abortion. The van was even equipped with a good humor style jingle playing nursery school songs. Here are the first few lines of the story. Past the grove of cypress trees, Walter saw the white truck and he knew it was it, they knew and knew it for what it was. He thought, that's the abortion truck. Come to take some kid in for a postpartum down at the abortion place. And he thought, maybe my folks called it for me. He ran and hid among the blackberries, feeling the scratching of the thorns, but thinking it's better than having the air sucked out of your lungs. That's how they do it. They have a big room for it for the kids nobody wants. The point is that when the concept of personhood is detached from biology, it becomes arbitrary with no objective criteria. Eventually, the definition of a person will be enforced by whichever group has the most power using the instrumentalities of the state. For your good, of course. It's for, as Stalin would say, for the good of the people. If an unborn baby is not a person, what about children already born? What about people with disabilities? People who are terminally ill, the mentally ill, the elderly. Ultimately, we're all at risk. Personhood theory, which was first applied to abortion, is now being applied to a host of other issues. We spent the last three weeks 
focused on the subject of abortion, but that's not where it stops. From euthanasia to selling fetal tissue, from stem cell research to animal rights, from genetic engineering to eugenics. In 2015, British columnist Katie Hopkins began to call literally for euthanasia vans. Quote, we just have far too many old people. She said in an interview, it's ridiculous to be living in a country where we can put dogs to sleep, but not people. Her proposition, her proposed solution, quote, easy. Euthanasia vans, just like ice cream vans that would come to your home. She apparently read this story because she's now lifting it for herself. Hopkins is being deliberately provocative, but she's also serious. She said this, it would all be perfectly charming. They might even have a nice little tune they'd play. I mean this genuinely. I'm super keen on on euthanasia vans. For the past few years, the country of Holland already has euthanasia vans. A Dutch right-to-die organization offers a mobile euthanasia service with with teams traveling around the country to to deliver lethal drugs or injections to patients whose own doctors have ethical objections to helping them die. Critics have dubbed them mobile death squads. Once a society accepts a worldview, that tends to work itself out. Remember, ideas have consequences. So the process may proceed quickly or slowly, but because we are rational beings made in God's image, we tend to always live out uh, the implications of our convictions. The two-story dualistic worldview was applied first to babies in the womb, right? The fetus was declared a non-person, expendable, disposable, fair game for research and experimentation. But today, bioethicists have begun to apply that same dehumanizing logic to those who are already born. According to personhood theory, human dignity consists in the ability to exercise conscious, deliberate control over our lives. That's the upper story. The disabled patient loses mental control due to disease or injury, and then personhood itself is then lost, even though the patient is still alive and human lower story. Medical professionals have always had to make difficult practical decisions when treating severely ill patients, so we don't want to take that lightly. We understand there are extremely difficult situations. There are times when life and death decisions have to be made, but the best principle is always to err if we're going to err on the side of life. But it can be a judgment call whether a particular medical procedure is life-saving or merely prolonging death. Part of what I want to emphasize here is I understand that there are ethical things that are difficult for us to decide. I want to come back to one one thing. Let me back up and just put another footnote or emphasis here. If we're Christians, we're committed to following the Word of God wherever it takes us. You go, I don't like that. Or other people don't, you know... You know, this is not popular. I know other Christians who don't follow this. Our fundamental commitment is, what has God said? Let God be found true, though every man a liar. 
Now, I realize I may have to wrestle with what the scriptures actually say. That's, that's critical. I don't get to just be simplistic or wooden in this approach. But um, so back to this issue, when a patient's organ systems are all shutting down despite the best medical treatment, then it might be that the next thing, I was re- when I read that book, uh, Being Mortal, the doctor in there says sometimes people ask the question with a, have a dying relative, particularly an older patient, they'll say, what, what else can be done? And he said, what people don't realize that in the medical field, and this is not a slam at the medical field, but he just said, there's always, we can always do something else. Now, whether we should do it is another question. So the principle, just to take a little sidetrack here that might help you in the future if you're in that situation, is that we, the intervention uh, is appropriate if it prolongs life, but not appropriate if all it's doing is prolonging death. Now even that's hard to apply sometimes in, in actual situations, but that is the principle. We're not just saying, look, this person's going to die today or they're going to die next week, uh, but we're going to do something else to just prolong this uh, unnecessarily. So uh, those are are hard decisions, but that is a a basic principle. In that case, ending uh, invasive and painful forms of medical intervention uh, may allow for more humane care of patients. Peter Singer expresses the dualistic worldview when he insists, quote, that the concept of a person is distinct from that of a member of the species Homo sapiens and that it is personhood, not species membership, that is most significant in determining when it is wrong to end life. In other words, being a member of the human species is not enough to qualify as a person with the right to life. You must also meet some additional standard, some level of mental functioning. If you fail to meet that standard, you're just a piece of matter and your body can be used for experiments, harvested for organs, subject only to a cost-benefit analysis. As bioethicist Tom Bocamp writes, quote, because many humans lack properties of personhood, or are less than full persons, they might be aggressively used as human research subjects or sources of organs. So in our day, bioethicists like Singer and Bocamp, who influence the doctors who set hospital policy and the legislators who write laws and the judges who make rulings in court cases and the healthcare workers who make decisions about our parents and relatives and eventually about ourselves, they are the movers and the shakers. They're the idea people. And that's why it's critical that we delve more deeply into the personhood theory that lies at the heart of these secular bioethics. So, we keep coming back to this for good reason. A key turning point in the development of this two-story worldview was Darwin's theory of evolution which, by the way, is the only view that is taught in public schools, colleges, and universities, including all the local ones. So don't kid yourself. We're just going there to get a career. We're going to be a nurse. We're going to be a teacher. We're going to be a forester. We're going to be, yeah, and you're going to get a big dose of this. 
in every department. Oh, are there exceptions? Yeah, but they're exceptions. They're the holdout. They're the one Christian professor here or there. But the fundamental philosophy of the whole system is Darwinian. And so it's not surprising that many of the leading figures who first called for abortion and euthanasia were supporters of Darwinism. Many of them were advocates of eugenics, which was the attempt to improve humanity by eliminating people with disabilities and genetic defects, as well as people deemed to be of lower races. In the public mind, eugenics is linked to the Nazis, but in reality, it was practiced and promoted throughout much of the Western world long before the rise of Nazism. In the 19th century, German biologist Ernst Hankel gained fame for his out, as, as an outspoken promoter of the Darwinian theory. In his opinion, modern civilizations that care for the disabled are actually interfering with the evolution principle of survival of the fittest. He urged them to follow, quote, the example of the Spartans and Redskins who killed disabled infants immediately after birth, and he also favored euthanasia for disabled adults. On, the side of the, on this side of the Atlantic as well, Darwinism led many prominent thinkers to accept abortion and euthanasia. One historian writes, quote, the most pivotal turning point in the history of the euthanasia movement was the coming of Darwinism to America. For example, most people are familiar with Jack London's famous novels such as The Call of the Wild, but what they don't know is that London was an enthusiastic supporter of both euthanasia and eugenics. As a young man, London underwent what one historian calls, quote, a conversion experience to radical materialism by the reading of the works of Charles Darwin. He memorized long passages of, from Darwin and can quote them by heart the way Christians memorize scripture. In his short story titled, the Law of Life, written in 1901, London portrays an old Eskimo left behind by his nomadic tribe to die in the snow. As the wolves close in to devour him, the old man ponders that after all, evolution assigns the organism only one task, to reproduce so that the species will survive. After that, if the individual dies, what did it matter after all? Was it not the law of life? The story pounds home the theme that humans have no higher purpose beyond sheer biological survival. That those, who, and by the way, I don't even know where that comes from. Who, says, who said that that's our purpose? Where did purpose come from in a Darwinian world anyway? that those who have outlived their biological usefulness should be willing to die. Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood. Well, we could spend a few lessons on her. In 1921, she was another disciple of Darwin. Modern feminists honor her as a promoter of birth control, but many don't know that she also promoted death control, euthanasia. The quote, one, be one being to bring entrance into life under control of reason, and the other to bring the exit of life under that control. 
She wrote, quote, the most merciful thing a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., one of the most revered Supreme Court justices in American history. Many are surprised to learn that he, too, was an avid Darwinian who supported euthanasia and eugenics. He penned the infamous Buck versus Bell decision, 1927, supporting compulsory sterilization laws which many states had enacted to promote eugenics. In private correspondence, he also advocated, quote, putting to death infants that didn't pass the examination. Holmes expressed his contempt for anyone, quote, not prepared to kill anyone below standard. Another support of euthanasia was Clarence Darrow, the trial lawyer best known for arguing in favor of Darwinism in the Scopes trial in 1925. Many people know his name from that famous movie, Inherit the Wind, but Darrow favored infanticide, urging people to, quote, chloroform unfit children, show them the same mercy that has shown beasts that are no longer fit to live. These are prominent people. These are not obscure kooks. These are prominent kooks. Okay, that's another story. These are prominent thinkers. Why did Darwinism lead so many leading thinkers to support eugenics? Remember, you know what, eugenics, remember, is we're going to manipulate the human race to try to produce a better human. Darwin's theories often regarded as crucial scientific support for the philosophy of materialism, which reduces humans to material organisms motivated simply by physical pain and pleasure. That's what drives us. Avoid pain, seek pleasure. A journalist, John Zimmerich, explains, according to materialism, humans are, quote, merely potential sites for either suffering or pleasure, and if we cannot guarantee their pleasure, we at least can end their suffering. Even if the only way to end their suffering is to end their life. And so the corollary is that any morality that forbids, see, here, here's their view, that Christianity is actually evil, not just a different view. Because they're, the corollary is that any morality that forbids taking life in such circumstances must be suppressed, especially Christian morality. After all, moral principles are not material. They can't be seen, heard, weighed, uh, or measured. Consequently, materialist philosophy concludes that morality is not really real. It's an illusion. Window dressing to disguise what is really nothing but the human organism's drive and desire to avoid pain and enhance pleasure. And so the irony is that in practice, even committed materialists end up with a form of dualism. To use our two-story metaphor, materialists try to live in the lower story, just the physical world, defining reality strictly in terms of material objects that are knowable by science. But logically, they must decide there is some dividing line that distinguishes those who are subpersonal who may be killed with impunity from those who are full persons deserving of legal protection. Otherwise, they would think it was okay to kill everybody. Thus, even the most rigorous materialists are logically required to operate with an implicit personal dualism. 
They are compelled to draw a distinction between the human as a biological organism, lower story, who is expendable, versus the person, upper story, who has rights and liberties. It's really irrationality. It's back and forth. Um, Van Til described it as two washerwomen who traded each other's dirty laundry back and forth. Um, rationality and irrationality, however it suits us in the moment. So, um, got two minutes left. Anybody with a comment or a question? I know this was a hard lesson. It's hard to present, but I think really critical for us to be stirred and understand what's at stake. We're not, you know, yes, sir. Anybody, I, I just drew a blank on the name of the Clint Eastwood movie about the million dollar baby. Horrible but fantastic. And that's the problem. If it was just horrible, if it was as bad as most Christian movies that we see, uh, poor acting, poor writing, cheesy, then it wouldn't be a big deal. But instead, you got Clint Eastwood, who's a great writer, producer, director. And uh, you have Hilary Swank, who got Best Actress, I believe, for that movie that year. Uh, Morgan Freeman, who doesn't like to hear Morgan Freeman's voice. And you, you tell a story. And I said when I saw it, if you went into there and you didn't have your worldview intact, you just got manipulated. Because here's what a great storyteller does. He, takes, he, he or she writes the story in such a way to lead you to a conclusion. And if you don't know you're being sold something, and if you don't know that that's what's going on, because you see, he could have just as easily told the same story and reached the opposite conclusion by the way he told the story. You, you have certain sympathetic characters, you have certain despicable characters, you set the story up to where you're just, you're just drawn in to the whole story so that when he gets to the very end with the conclusion, you go, yeah, that's right. But you know, most movies are doing that all the time, right? Most stories, they have a, a story is designed to lead you somewhere, to get you to, to see something. Yeah. That's, that's right. Every, remember, I've said this over and over. Everybody, including me, is trying to sell you something all the time. Some of it's good. A lot of it's not. And if you're not aware that you're being sold something, you're going to be buying a lot of stuff you don't want. Father, we thank you for your word that protects us, that tells us the truth, that is the one reliable, authoritative source of truth. Help us, Lord, to establish in our own minds and hearts that that is where we start and end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.